The Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussions of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Zoe. And I'm Tom. How do the arts help us interpret the experience of living through a global pandemic? This is the question we ask this week on Stalk Talks. The arts have long been recognized as a source of great creativity and therapy. Perhaps it's not so surprising then that publications like the Washington Post and Deutsche Welle have invited their readers recently to share artworks exploring their experiences of Corona with them in order to publish them and share them with others. Indeed, Zoe. Artworks, be they books, paintings, films, comedy or sculptures, can help us make sense of our world. In a world where everything has been turned upside down, the arts are more important than ever. So this week on our show, we have invited two artists to join us. We asked them how their own works have grappled with the reality of living through Corona and how their audiences have responded. We'd like to welcome comedian, graphic designer, painter and sculptor, Michel. Hi, everybody. And apart of all these things, I can also make a very good omelette. Very important. Fantastic, fantastic, Michelle. And simultaneously, artist and designer uh, Peying Ling to Stalk Talks. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to you both. I'd like us to start with quite a broad question. How do you think the arts have helped us to understand the experience of living through a pandemic? Well, first of all, everybody experienced a dependency of life and death of their government. And actually, nobody needed art to understand that, to feel that. Now, I don't have uh, any figures, but I believe that the majority of the world's population is sort of disappointed in their leaders. And unfortunately, art can't really help with that. But on the other hand, art has a traditional role and art helps you to deal with stress. There's nothing new about that. Most people, they go for uh, entertainment, very easy entertainment, uh, Netflix and uh, social media and so forth. And it's only... a a small minority that really goes for art forms. So that's that's a traditional uh, role art is fulfilling in these uh, stressful times. I would imagine, Michelle, that a lot of people potentially would have gone for, for comedy because there's nothing like a laugh when you're facing death on a daily basis. Yeah, but you first of all, you need a lot of understanding of what's going on. That is first uh, safety and security and a good feel and all the things you have to do. But there's definitely a relation between... Uh, tragedy and, and comedy. We'll come to that later. Okay, Pei Ying, how about you? Well, I guess um, because my practice is already dealing with biological things and also my community is also highly engaged in viruses and bacteria even before the pandemic. It was interesting when the pandemic happened, we all find art being a very nice, neutral way to explore the essence of these biological beings and their interaction with human. And while it's a very different angle from the government or from the media, and uh, actually quite a lot of people are more calm when they're uh, confronted with this challenge of pandemic. So I guess 
<clears throat> in a way, art provides perspective, and art has a huge collection of different methodologies and tools that allows you to explore the world differently in the ways that perhaps others haven't. Did did it help you personally? Ah,、uh, yeah, tremendously. Because I was trying to understand viruses even before this, and when the pandemic comes, this. Uh, curiosity brings me to look at things like being more critical, in a sense, that critical of whether the information we receive was something that's the way it's presented, or does it has other layers, and also to visualize things because viruses are invisible. So I think a lot of process when it happens is to go through this process of visualizing. Where are they? Where do they exist? How people interact? How they transmitted? But with this element of trying to see them and to observe the change of behavior of people, which actually brings quite a bit of interesting observations. And I think that balance a bit that makes me less focused on the harmful part of the pandemic. More on、okay. the essence of it. Okay. Well, we'll talk more about that later. It's fascinating. Yeah, it, it,、uh, it's an interesting perspective, and then I think also comedy as an art form has also been a very effective way to grapple with tragedy. You mentioned it before as well, Michelle. Maybe a, a different question to that topic is: but how long do you think that people will use this global phenomenon of、uh, Corona or of this pandemic as, as a source of inspiration for for artistic expression? As long as it lasts. I think it's it's brought so much tragedy and so much、uh, death and and insecurity and、uh, economic problems mostly for people and social problems that as soon as we can get rid of it the better and、uh, I think I recently made a count I wrote wrote some some fifteen hundred jokes about Corona but when it's over I can ditch him nobody wants to hear him anymore which is a good thing. And、uh, you can have all sorts of nostalgia aspects, and you know when I was small, and you make a joke about your your children's day, but in two years' time, you say, "Hey guys, want to hear a good Corona joke?" No, we don't want to hear that. So I think it will will、uh, go very very quickly. On the other hand, if you look at pandemic、um, aspect, that is something that will stay. And now, actually, for the first time, people are realizing, well, this may come back in in another year, another two years. Just don't know. Just thinking, are you going to be able to dust off some of your Corona jokes then? And Re rehash them on those one thousand five hundred. Just fill in the Corona twenty one joke. <laughs> yeah, not meeting people and not not being able to、uh, to work on stage as as a comedian and.、Um And that sort of thing, but、uh, we'll see how that works. Yeah, I think for me, like one a quick final question is: it sort of seems like you see arts in in two opposite ways. On one hand, we want to forget it; we want to sort of push it to the side, everything that has happened, and don't remember, think about it. And simultaneously, you recognize that art can also help us remember and be aware for the future. Like, wh- where does arts play in that balance? Yeah, well, you have to talk about the performing art, and then the, the art where you really listen to newly made material. And、uh, understandable material. I mean, dance is very abstract. Dance can can be totally influenced with what's happening at the moment. And, and many dancers, I know a lot of them, they are busy with trying to visualize what's what's going on in their their minds and their hearts, so, which which is totally appropriate. That's always been done by choreographers. But that's very difficult to read for an audience. Well, if you are in a, in an audience and somebody's standing on stage and he tells things which he wrote that day or the week before. Or which come up in his mind as he's standing there, because particularly comedy is an extreme in the moment art form, and、uh, that's what audiences like. When you leave your your set, when you get out of your 
pre-programmed jokes, then is when it's really happening and when you're interacting with the audience. And then it's when, uh, it's when the fun starts. And that has to be what happening, what's happening that week or that, that period in your life. If periods are difficult and tragic, then um, you rather make comedy about what's happening on that moment and not so much on, on reflecting back on what happened. And people like to look forward. Huh? The past is the past. So you make, you make comedy about what's happening in the moment and about the future. And, uh, yeah, so it's quite ephemeral. And I think that that leads us nicely on to our next question, which is for you, Pei Ying. We came across what seems to me quite an ephemeral project, your Virophilia cookbook, which is in fact, if, if we've understood correctly, it is a an installation with video and dinner performances. And you've, you've said that it isn't so much about informing people about viruses, but rather about providing them with an opportunity to start a conversation around corona and perhaps the pandemic more generally. It also comes in chapters. So perhaps just for our listeners, you could talk us through some of those chapters and explain a little bit more as, as you go. The project was actually done before the pandemic, so the original um, motivation for it wasn't really related with uh, Corona. But then it was done, one of the dinner performances was done last year in Taiwan as a delivery. And it was in the form of delivery because we were basically in quarantine and cannot have like a gathering where you take off the mask and eat. So that was uh, transformed that way. And in fact, the whole project was trying to explore the possibility that if we look at viruses in general, a lot of viruses are being discovered by science because they cause disease. But as gradually as we know more about viruses and as the technology develops, there are other techniques to see the virus's existence through different methodologies like metagenomics or other things. And they discover that a lot of viruses are probably beneficial to their host. And that fact really struck me when I first learned it. And so I started to think that if it's beneficial, like it's not completely evil. And if you take this connotation into culture and trying to create a culture with the viruses since they've been there with us forever, maybe this perception of harmful viruses can be changed a bit. And that's why I was looking at the cuisines, because if you look at our history with bacteria, it's very similar that we were thinking that they were harmful. And then we talk about probiotics now. The first chapter was trying to simulate the sickness as adding on pleasure or interesting experiences for dining. For example, like simulating norovirus that makes you puke and diarrhea. So you will get like really painful stomach. So you electrify your stomach to simulate that kind of feeling. And that is something that we might be able to start right now as some slightly more extreme um, culinary experience. Well, the second chapter referred to how we use bacteria in the history, that we use bacteria to ferment while viruses have similar functionalities because they also, by infecting their host, sometimes the tissue will change. The texture of the tissue will change or the morphology or the colors will change. Like the tulip breaking virus makes tulip look really different. These are what's happening with the interaction between the virus and the host when they are living. And I frame it as a way of fermenting. 
So you can use virus to ferment food in different ways. So you change the texture, the colors, the taste. And the third chapter is using viruses as active ingredients. It's easier to understand that probably a lot of people recently just had the experience of having a vaccine. And that triggers an immune response to in your body, but it doesn't last very long. Like <coughs> we all get corona vaccination recently. Corona can last for 10 days or longer, while the vaccine will make you sick for a day or so. So these kind of dishes has viruses or semi-virus components in there that make you sick for only a few hours, but that's a part of the dining experience, and while also working as a vaccine as well. Yeah, just just like my cooking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you eat that, you're sick for just a couple of hours. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Michelle raises a, a very interesting question because I understand your desire to to show that we can interact with viruses positively and negatively, but what would be the motivation for someone to choose to infect themselves with norovirus? Uh, I mean, I, the last thing I want to do is be throwing up or have diarrhea. It's, how does that work? Have you ever tried a spicy hot pot from China? I have, oh, yeah. and it was very difficult to handle. <laughs> yeah, I think those are the ones that we look for, or some people look for it. So, mm-hmm. And I think that sort of having them as active ingredients make you sick sort of stands around that edge of this dining okay. experience in a way. And it has another plus that it's also a vaccine. So you can have your vaccination through eating <laughs> instead of just having a jab. So it's a combined pleasure, maybe. Michelle, do you, do you see some some material here? <laughs> Well, as I said, it makes me think of my cooking, which is mostly bacteria, and um, that's a very difficult thing. But from a medical point of view, in your body, you have a lot of bacteria and a lot of things which are basically very, very bad, but it all balances, and then it works pretty well. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, food can be, uh, can be uh, threatening as well. And actually, comedy and food have a lot, lot in common, of course. It brings people together and you know, makes you feel good. This is extremely cultural, of course, and uh, what we experience as comedians, you cannot laugh on an empty stomach. Yeah? Although, uh, on the other hand, I've also done dinner shows, and comedians are always brought in to sell more food. It's never the other way around. Hey, we have bad comedians, let's bring in some, uh, some foie gras. That's a very nice example, uh, Michelle. But I want to quickly take it back to Peying. Peying, I'm curious as to how you see the, the future of these meals might they become somewhat of like a cleansing ritual will we use these as like a the, like a cleansing meal to prepare us for future viruses possibly i mean during my research i'm not a scientist but i came across several research that was trying to see if the vaccines can be delivered in fruit or something you eat because it would be easier to grow easier to transport and much lower cost yeah, it's an area of research. And from an artist's point of view, I think it's not that far from really having them as food. It's just how you frame it and how you see, for example, those side effects that's being always listed as something that's not so good or not so anticipated and something anticipated in the framework of dinner or, you know, like different things. Well, actually, it's interesting. Why do we still need jabs? Eh? You were- we have pills for everything. Why did this world important thing had to come via an injection? Yeah, well, I think a piece of fruit is far more attractive way of, of getting a vaccine than, than a sharp needle. I, I know which one I would choose, given the choice. 
for me, it just keeps like uh, bringing me back to like an apple a day, you know, that, that <laughs> quote, like, like it, it gets a whole new meaning. It's, but, but I, I think like what we're already hypothesizing, it speaks to, to one of the, the, well, one of the questions that we had as well is to sort of envision which role viruses could play in the future and what role it could play in our lives. Michelle, how do you see this, the future and the interrelationship between viruses and, and humans? Well, there's an interesting thing. First of all, the COVID was, of course, an, an economical and a an, uh, social problem for uh, people. And then for the whole world came that face mask. Now you regard your, your face as a part of your personality. And apart from cultures and climates where you have to uh, cover that, the rest of the world, everybody, when you go out, you're just forced to express that and to show that part of your personality. Well, you may not want that. Now, if you're feeling bad or you're distracted or you're ill, everybody sees that immediately. Everybody reads your face. And there was a sort of convenience, which you may have noticed personally as well, when you go out and you go into stores, etc., you're just not showing everything. If you think it's photography, end of the 19th century, men, they all wear hats and they had big mustaches. And that is a lot of covering. And everybody was happy with that. And mustaches uh, disappeared. And in the 1960s, uh, hats disappeared. And suddenly, you had to show everything, including, well, if you lose your hair, that's a very uncomfortable thing. But it, it, sh it showed immediately. And as long as there were hats, which is the most part of, of uh, history, at least in, in the West, people felt quite comfortable with that. Well, that's all gone. Uh, all of the year, where we go out without hats, etc. So that discrete effect of a uh, face mask, that will be lost, because people will love to throw away the face mask as soon as uh, COVID is over, but then you lose that aspect of discretion, which is quite nice. Now, the, the new normal everybody is speaking about, it is basically people want back to normal, but back to always sounds bad. So they want to give something fashionable or hip to the... Uh, the normal we're going back to. So let's call it new normal, with the exception of that homeworking. That's a great thing. A lot of people say, yes, what indeed was I doing there 40 hours a week at an office? You know, you just walk around, you look at the clock until it's five, and then you can go home. And uh, it's, it's much better to, to work a substantial part uh, from home, which is also good for traffic and environment and uh, what have you. Actually, not very sure the mask will be completely gone when we get the chance, because if you look at SARS, that was 17, 18 years ago in Asia, and they somehow introduced this habit of wearing masks whenever. Yep. Japan, Taiwan yep. as well. Um, you just like whenever you are sick or you just don't want others to see or just you don't want to put on makeup, they just put the mask on and people feel that it's completely normal. So maybe there will be a balance. Yeah. And maybe we'll see this more across the Western world as well. Because I know when I lived in Hong Kong, yes, it was very common to see people wear masks yeah. when they had flu. But you, you would never see it here. Maybe this trend will catch on uh, in places like the Netherlands. Good idea. Good idea. What's it just just briefly, we, we might come back to that question of the future, but just briefly talking about the arts, there's your production of the arts, but there's also the reception of arts by, of course, by audiences. And that brings us to the question of delivery. So how did the pandemic change the manner in which art is shared and consumed? Because we know that along with hospitality, I think the arts world took a massive hit. We saw art galleries closing down, theatres. How, how has that impacted you as artists? Do you think there'll be some things that won't go back to how they were? I see more of new forms instead of like, I think once everything is opened up, we will still go back to the normal or the previous ways of presenting artworks. 
but at the same time having new ways of doing it. So like there were a lot of this performance delivery online at home, and that's really nice in the sense that it, it crossed the geographical limit, and then you can participate in a show across the continent, like in the states or in Asia. And that also allows, like for example, workshops to happen online because people's habit changed. The the really physical experience seems to be missing at the moment, but it brings this new kind of virtual experience and techniques of doing it. While when we switch back, I think a lot of places, institutions, will actually prefer a hybrid form. Of having virtual and physical at the same time. Yeah, there are a lot of live performances, which from the the artists or the performers out. I even think of of masses and and uh, church uh, services. People said, well, we the persons who do it, and the other ones who are sitting in the audience, and that's it, and who can't come. Uh, tough luck. But all these performances, many of them have gone uh, online, as such as for instance the church of my uh, my wife, and suddenly they noticed that a lot of people like that. Elderly people couldn't come because they're just you know, over 80 to over 90. And now suddenly, hey, the church they like, it's online. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not feeling really well. I can't come. I see it online. Or it's not convenient. I'll, I'll, later in the afternoon, I'll look at the recording. So a lot of those performances, they, they got away a bit from, from the, the old style or call it even arrogance that you, you come, you pay and you see it and that's it. It's totally unique. It's an in the moment thing. Let's still have a dance performance with 40 people and also put it on YouTube or in our own channel. And maybe people around the world will see you. That's, that's a great thing. Meanwhile, the visual arts, it was already an ongoing movement that... Uh, galleries were closing and people were choosing and buying art online. I know a lot of painters and photographers and they say, it's amazing, you make a painting, people see it on their mobile and they order it. Every artist says you have to see the painting, you have to feel the thing and uh, look at it from a, from a distance and how it's on your wall. No, 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 they just, they don't go to galleries anymore, they order it online. It's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite amazing. And I think this, this whole pandemic gave that a sort of boost. It's far more normal just to buy anything you like, you want uh, online. An exception, if I can come back to, to comedy, uh, comedy is really something because it's so in the moment, it can change so rapidly. Plus, you go there to laugh. Laugh is a communal thing. You laugh because you're close together. A lot of laughing is, is laughing along. Everybody's laughing, so who are you not to laugh? And um, yeah, it's, it's everything surrounding the arts as well I think that's a, yeah. a nice statement as well is we, we, we spoke about a lot about the arts itself but there's so much to it to arriving in the theater hanging your coat and then having a drink before the show starts and, and the anticipation before the show starts rather than just sort yeah. of yeah. yeah sitting behind your laptop clicking like turning it on and then being there right away there, there's something about that anticipation build-up I think absolutely you know in, in the, the foyer just the whole buzz it's you know we've got five more minutes that's 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 yeah. part of the fun. Yeah, for the performers as well, I can imagine. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your artist room is so you hear the sound and you have just one one idea. If the curtain opens, is there an audience? You know, there are five people in the front <laughs> row, of which just six are drunk, or is it a packed house? And how is the atmosphere? And you get a sort of feedback, and then uh, people from the this theater come. No, oh, no, it's it's gonna be a good night. It's gonna be a good night. <laughs> and, uh, that's pretty good fun. Time flies. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed our, our discussion. Thank you so much, both Michelle and Pei Ying, for joining us today. There is so much that we haven't touched on from both of you. If our audience or our listeners would like to know a little bit more about what you're doing, perhaps Pei Ying, you could just 
tell them where where they can find more information and then Michelle you can do the same um, well so I have a website if you search for my name which is p-e-i-y-n-g-l-i-n.net you can see the project that's where I'm having the residency at the moment is called instrument inventors and they have a short initial as i-i-i so it looks like three my detail of my residency is also there and they also have really amazing um, other artists there as well and they're mainly about performances and sound art great okay michelle will, sh- will we look out yeah. in, a, in a local venue near near us elderly home I, maybe uh, yeah i hope so who knows who knows well, a lot of uh, stand-up comedy in the Netherlands is done in, in English, and, and they're really nice uh, performances because the, the because of the audience. It's a very mixed audience of expats, students, and uh, they really enjoy that that international feel. They're mostly uh, Dutch comedians like myself, but it's a very cultural thing. So, so, but you have to check it out via via Facebook or via newspapers, etc., and, and other websites. What's going on in your your city? Just type in uh, stand-up comedy and. It is, it's, it's a sort of Dutch variety. So if you compare it to what's done in England or the United States, which are the main countries for uh, stand-up comedy, it's, it's really a cultural thing here. And I would say try it out. But you have on such evenings usually six to eight comedians all 10 minutes. So if there's one or two which you don't like very much, who cares? In 10 minutes, they're gone. Yeah. And there are other ones to come. Uh, also all ages. Um, but just ch- check it out. Yeah, we'll we'll put some links in the show notes as well, where people can find the the links to the both of the website and to your comedy blog as well, uh, Michelle. Okay, when, great. Uh, and to all of the the listeners, we would just like to say, like, stay tuned. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Anchor, and there you'll also find previous episodes in which we discuss the Iranian elections, which will be held this week. Lastly, you can find the full interview of this episode on our YouTube channel called Stalk Talks. Thank you for stalking with us this week and we look forward to welcoming you back in the next.